Welcome everyone to another episode of Investors Gallery. I did not forget. So it's two things I always forget. I'm excited because I didn't forget. So the first thing to introduce myself, because Anna, I never remember to introduce myself. I'm always so excited about the guests that I have. So my name is Presley. I am half of Dimensional Partners, uh, Capital Partners here in Houston. And we are a multifamily syndication. And I have to make sure my attorney is not on here yet. We'll be launching our $100 million real estate fund within the next month and a half. So I'm excited for that. And we're also developing here in Houston as well as in Michigan uh, for multifamily and single family as well. And the other thing that I always forget is um, for the individuals that are in the, uh, I don't waiting area or whatever you call it, uh, but the people who are also on the, the podcast with us, if you want to put your comments, put in the comments your information, so that way if somebody else joins and they need your services, they can see you. And then also remember, guys, at the end to ask questions because this podcast goes everywhere. But if you ask a question and introduce yourself, everybody in the world gets to hear what you do and they might need you for something. So I'm really excited because I have uh, a young lady who I have been following for a couple years now, and she is amazing. And yes, I say that every week. And yes, it's true, but she is truly amazing. Her worth ethic and everything that she does translates to everything we want to do in our head, but she actually does it, everything. So I'm really excited today. I have Anna. Thank you for coming on, Anna. Introduce yourself and uh, tell us how you got started and what you're doing and, and all that good stuff. Great, Presley. You might need two hours if I have to start from the beginning. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm a multifamily operator, syndicator, and developer. Um, I, I primarily operate and develop properties in the Atlanta, Georgia markets, Houston, Texas, and all of Texas, really. Um, San Antonio, Austin, and DFW were targeting. So I am a Texan originally. I now live in the Hershey, Pennsylvania area, but once you're a Texan, you're always a Texan. And so I still love everything about Texas, including uh, my properties there. And that's where I got my start. So I started investing in real estate. My very first real estate property was in 1998. So it's been 24 years since I bought my first deal. Seems like just yesterday, um, but it was small. I bought a condo, right? And then eventually I bought a house as a speculative investment in Houston, thinking that it was going to skyrocket in value very quickly, just like the ones on the other side of the highway. And I realized that sometimes our speculations take a little longer than we think they will. And then in 2003, Presley, I had my first child. And that was about the year that all the HGTV Flip This House shows started coming on. And I was in bed rest, and I had really climbed up the corporate ladder. I had been in private banking actually was the number one private banker for Bank of America for Texas um, wow. in 1998. And then I left banking and went to AIG right there in Houston. And I worked for AIG in a department that handled the wealth and creative products for ultra high net worth investors. So I had all these ultra high net worth investors. I could tell them what to do with their money once they had it, but I didn't have any money myself. And so I had to figure out how am I going to get money instead of having to wait and do it the traditional retail way, save a bunch of money, put it in your 401k and hope that one day when you're 65, you'll have enough to retire. I saw that that was really difficult to do as a young married with a new baby and house and school loans and car payments and all of that. And although I was very, very driven and worked at, you know, my way up at AIG, I wanted to be home with that baby the minute I held him in my arms. And I said, I have to find a way to replace my six-figure income at AIG and get home with that baby. So I decided to flip a house. So with a three-month-old baby in tow, I flipped a house and we lost money. We did it all the wrong ways because we had no idea what we were doing other than television and seeing that, oh, if people can make you know 100K on a, on a flip or two, surely we could do it, right? So we lost money. Long story there, but it took us about a year and the economy started to change and we weren't able to sell it for as much as we thought. And my husband said that was stupid and we're never, ever going to do it again. <laughs> so fast forward to 2007, I thought, well, I'm not going to flip properties. 
Um, and I was pregnant with my second baby and I was desperate to get home with them. And I said, we've got to figure out a way to do this. It must be entrepreneurship. That's the way for us to create financial freedom and for me to be able to stay home. So we relocated here to the Hershey, Pennsylvania area in 2007 at the height of the economy, thinking the economy was only going to get better. And we started a business with $700,000 in business startup debt. The one smart thing we did in the midst of a really stupid move to start a new business with that much debt was instead of leasing space, we bought a property. And that property, Presley, had retail space on the bottom, which my husband was going to practice in. And it had three apartments and four garages. And at that time in 2007, there were no work from home employees, none at, at AIG that had 10,000 employees. And I begged them to let me work from home. And because my job was really complex and not easy to replace, they said, we'll let you try it for six months. So I said to my husband, we can't buy a house because if I lose my job and your business doesn't go well, we won't do well. But if we buy this little property, we could house hack one of the units. Before I knew what house hacking was, right. it was a nice apartment upstairs above the practice. And I thought we could always live in it. And then if I lose my job, we'll be okay. Well, turned out that was a good move. And a year later, we bought a four unit apartment building because the same thing, the little one bedroom was too small. 2008, I saw a four unit apartment building right across the street. And I said, you know, again, I wasn't thinking about being a real estate millionaire, right? It wasn't on the top of my mind. It was just, let's make a smart financial move. It's too soon to buy a house. We could take a step back, live in this unit, and then have our other three tenants pay the rent. So by having two buildings in 08, our expenses of owning the properties were completely covered and we were essentially living for free. And so that was really the smartest thing that I did because a year later, the sky fell out from under the economy. AIG almost went under. We entered the Great Recession and every little bit of money I had left, which was in the stock market in my 401k was completely uh, wiped out. So wow. 2009 was a really tough year, one of the hardest of my life. But since we had bought real estate, I had this aha moment, Presley. Everything I had been taught through my financial advisory training at Bank of America, at AIG, none of it was really working when we were in a great recession, right? My husband's business wasn't going well. Entrepreneurship wasn't working. I was threatened to lose my job weekly as we were in the newspaper that we were under federal bailout. And the only thing that was going well was my tenants were all still paying. They kept writing that check every month. And I realized I can't depend on my 401k, can't depend on my job at AIG, can't depend on a new business, but I can depend on those tenants to pay rent. I need to buy more real estate. And that's what really propelled me to go on the journey of using real estate and particularly small apartment buildings to really create financial freedom. I ended up retiring at 44 after I bought 70 units uh, through about a 10-year period with the recession, everyone telling me I couldn't borrow money because I worked for AIG and had too much debt. And, you know, in a 10 year period, we, we went from a negative 700,000 net worth to a multi-million dollar net worth and completely financial, financially free. From there, I've just continued to scale and do, you know, larger multifamily joint ventures and larger multifamily syndications. And that's where I am today in a nutshell. Wow. It's almost like you've told this story before. <laughs> a lot of times. You know why, <laughs> Presley? Because I truly believe that if I can do it with, you know, really no money starting out um, and not knowing a lot about finances in terms of how do you create wealth. I knew how to do something with wealth, you know, once you had it because of my training at AIG um, in Bank of America. But before that, Presley, I grew up in Section 8 housing in San Antonio, Texas. Um, before I moved into Houston. And I had no family that had wealth, that had real estate, that had money. I really didn't know anything about how, how to create wealth. And so, um, you know, people tell me they're inspired my, by my story. And that's why I continue to tell it. Because if I could figure it out with two babies and a husband, and eventually we had four kids during that time, work full time, create a side hustle and, and get it done. I truly believe that anybody with absolute grit and determination to change your life can do the exact same thing that I did. Wow. And I think what's even more amazing 
you've taken all the excuses away and, and you just said that but I don't think people when they're here when they hear the story we hear so many amazing stories especially now that we have social media we have tv radio and information um gets communicated and transferred instantly we can see the most amazing thing and it's still like oh yeah that was nice but it's until you're in that situation, you're trying to figure out how do I dig myself out? How do I climb out of this hole? Yes. And I, I do this on every podcast. I do this every time I speak. I always try to um, highlight the significance of what the speaker is saying, because people don't realize maybe the moms that will listen to this do. People don't realize how difficult it is to be in important meetings with babies that are crying my wife works from home and my he's now two so he's been in daycare for maybe about a year or something but my wife would have meetings with an infant I don't know how she did it to be honest but they don't realize how significant that story is how difficult that story is to have a baby in a house that was definitely not baby proofed whether you were doing the work or not, you still have to go look at the house, you know, and make sure that your baby didn't injure themselves or, you know, whatever. That is such a big thing. So I appreciate you, you sharing that story with us. What made you take the leap from the smaller units that you had, you know, you got, um, you started with single and then you went to uh, the quads or the, uh, the four units. What made you take a link from, leap from those smaller units to the 70 units? You know, when I decided to start doing larger multifamily and thought that I could actually do it with the financial wherewithal, um, I always had known since about 09, I, I went to a large multifamily conference and seminar and the woman that was putting it on Presley turned out to be a fraud, right? So I hired a coach that turned out to be a fraud, long wow. story short, but she went to prison and I was really jaded by people in the multifamily space and the conference gurus. You know, this was right as everything was crashing and I saw real estate crashing and there were some, there were some shysters, right? And so I thought, you know, they promised it doesn't matter what kind of background you have. You don't have to have any money and you can own, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate. And that wasn't necessarily easily true. Um, so I got jaded. And the biggest mistake that I made, Presley, is that I just try to do it on my own with no other partners, no help for a really long time. And because of where we were in the economy, that was really tough. Yeah, that's me. That's, I'm learning to delegate. It's very difficult. Yes, yes. And so, you know, I did it on my own for a very long time. I say I, I do have to give my husband credit because we did it together. We just did it in different ways, right? So we did it as a team. He is the, the hands-on guy and I'm the one that loves the money and the finances and putting together a business plan and, you know, creating the, the wealth. Um, but we got to the point where we had 70 units and it took us 10 long years to develop those 70 units because we started not only with no money, but we started with a negative 700,000 net worth, a new job that was barely making money and a job for me that was in the news every day that I was losing it. And so my salary not only went to cover our living expenses, but it went to cover paying his staff to work in his office. So I had to you know, kind of cover a business, cover a lot of debt, we had four babies uh, within six years. And so, you know, that got very expensive. Um, so it just took us a lot longer than I thought it would. You know, I saw real estate and all of a sudden deals were very plentiful in 2009 and 10, but the banks dried up for real estate investors. And I knew nothing about private money. I knew nothing about partnerships. Um, and I finally started learning creative financing. Creative financing got me into several properties without banks. Then I brought on a partner deal by deal, one at a time. And then at the point that I had 70 units, Presley, that's what I needed to have paid off all of the debt that we had all those years and to really replace a six-figure income with a cushion for vacations and healthcare and all of that. But before I left AIG, which was in May of 2019, I made a decision that summer of 2018 that I would like to start scaling into larger multi-units. 
I knew that I could handle 70 from soup to nuts. It wouldn't be any harder to do a 70 unit building. It's just all in one location. So I had the confidence that I could do it. I learned a lot over that decade. Um, but I decided before I give my notice, I want to have my first large joint venture under my belt. And I want to have additional cash flow coming in, some acquisition fees and some savings. You know, I really wanted a six-figure savings before I quit. So I found a deal. I found a partner, an operating partner who worked with a lot of private investors. And um, I had a private investor come in and we took down a joint venture with three of us. And after I did that, I had the confidence that, okay, I did this. Now I can start doing this when I leave AIG. And at that point, I, I really had a decision to make Presley. One, I created financial freedom. I didn't have to do any more deals. And that's a beautiful place to be. The day I walked out of AIG realizing I was financially free and I could live the rest of my life without ever going to work again, I had to decide, is that really what I want? And all those years, I tried to get home with my babies. By the time I was able to retire, all of my kids were in school. So I didn't ever get that dream of really being a stay-at-home mom. But I knew God brought me through that path for a reason. And it wasn't just to sit there comfortably for the rest of my life doing nothing, right? I grew up in Section 8 housing. I had no financial literacy aside from, you know, going to school, getting the degree, going to Bank of America. And I did a lot of work with inner city kids in Houston. And I really had this burning desire within myself to make an impact on communities and to go impact kids and teach them, how do you escape poverty? How do you do better with your life? You may not become wealthy, but how do you just escape poverty? So I knew I wanted to start buying apartments where I could go make an impact on my tenants, make a difference there, and create enough wealth that I could start creating financial literacy products um, and getting more involved philanthropically, really within our city kids. So that's what really made me say, yeah, I don't say I'm retired anymore. I'm financially free and I do what I love. But I work today, I just don't work 70 or 80 hours a week like I did when I worked full time and did real estate as a side hustle. But the larger multifamily for me were a way to really make an impact and create legacy wealth for my family so that they could go create an impact the same way. Did you have a lot of moments that when you were in between um, starting the, the early ventures with your husband and finding the smaller deals, did you have a lot of moments where you wanted to give up? Oh, all the time, all the time. But, you know, I learned a lot um, as a kid. My mom did what it took. You know, she worked two to three jobs. She was, she had a few abusive marriages and she did what it took to take care of us and survive. And so I had that kind of instinct from a very young age that I'm going to survive I'm going to have a better life than, than I had growing up. I'm going to be able to give my kids a better life. And because that was always at my forefront, again, not to be wealthy, but just to be okay. I wanted to know that if something happened to my husband, I could survive. We wouldn't end up in poverty and in a woman's shelter, right? I could take care of my kids. So I had lots of moments where it was really hard. And I thought, I don't know how to get out of this. The day that AIG almost went under and the rest of the financial world, um, I saw, I looked at my 401k, I lost two thirds of my 401k, which was everything we had left, everything I saved so hard for. And my husband's business started to struggle. And I found out the same week I was pregnant with number three, he was kind of a bit of a surprise. And I cried and cried and cried. And I said, God, we tried to do everything right. We tried to live on one income. We paid off his school loan in seven years. You know, we lived on rice and beans and beans and rice and followed Dave Ramsey, and I try to do all these things right and things outside of my control, the financial system collapse is really what started to take us down. And I just had a, you know, that boohoo moment where I wallowed in despair. And I said, you know, God, I just have to trust you and, and give me wisdom to figure this out and to, to figure out how to get home with my kids. And whatever comes, I'm just going to take take a leap of faith and figure it out and, and find solutions instead of finding excuses. My why was much bigger than the pain, but boy, Presley, I went through a lot of hard, hard moments. And that was just the beginning. You know, the next 10 years of being a real estate investor had a lot of bumps in the road and made, you know, days that I questioned, am I capable of doing this? 
And am I ever going to be able to move forward? And just having grit and determination really is more important than the knowledge that you have about anything. If you have grit and determination and you're willing to do what it takes to figure out solutions to get out, it may take longer than you thought it would. And it did for me. Um, but success is guaranteed if you don't give up. How, how do I want to propose this question? Um, how do you think your kids mature through that growth versus if you would have never took those leaps of faith? Um, so in, in everything, the financial things uh, that you're able to give them now and um, the life that they are living now, how do you think they would have turned out different if you hadn't done that? Wow, Presley, that is a profound question, and I've never asked myself that. Um, I've all I, I've definitely asked why did things happen this way many times in the process before I could see the end result. Um, why didn't I get to stay home with my kids? As a mom, for those of you listening that are moms, you'll understand like there is no greater guilt than not being able to be home with your kids when you want to be. That was a hard thing. And so I wrestled with God over that. Why, what are you doing? How can this be good? I want something so simple. I wanna be home with my kids. I don't want riches. I don't want position. You know, I had some experienced some of that, but I just wanted to be home. And so, um, you know, I was a little worried that if, if I have to put my kids in daycare, they're not gonna turn out okay. They're not gonna have me that's there with them every moment. And I was blessed, Presley, that when I moved to Pennsylvania, my mother-in-law watched my kids. And so I only had the oldest in daycare. Um, but I realized looking back that they really thrived because they had a community of people pouring into them and not just me, right? Um, and I had to give up the illusion that them turning out okay was completely my responsibility. And I had to spend every moment with them for them to be okay they are able to now see what hard work looks like, what persistence looks like, what struggle looks like. And I do believe that they're much more grateful for what we have because they've heard me tell my story. You know, they remember my oldest two, they're 16 and 19 now. They remember being on our apartment floors, filthy floors and us painting till three or four o'clock in the morning for the next tenant that's moving in while they're studying and crying and hating apartments. They hated real estate forever. They're like, we'll never do real estate. Well, then, because the whole time we were growing Presley, we didn't live like we had money. It was, you know, I was very determined. I knew I needed 70 units to replace my income and walk away. And I didn't take any money out of those apartments other than just putting it back into the next one and the next one and the next one so that when I did retire, it didn't feel like a big difference. So my kids have never been really spoiled until you know the last couple of years. Now we're, we, we're living on the fruit of, of the reward, right? We're traveling a lot and they're seeing that, wow, it took mom and dad a long time to do this. Um, and I remind them, um, you know, this is hard earned money. You don't just get things just because you want it. The way we got here is we delayed gratification we learned to take a step back and do things the right way and build a future and not just live extravagantly. And so I think they have that concept of money and hard work. Um, and for that, I'm very grateful. That's amazing. Has your, okay. So through your, your journey and the, the testing of your faith, God has obviously answered that because you're here and you're successful. Did the quote unquote right terms in your, your current journey, did, did that give you or and does that give you strength and more faith to take bigger steps, bigger actions and bigger risks in, in the deals that you do now? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I've definitely, I'd, I'd say my life is characterized by having to take, take a leap of faith in, in every situation and, and knowing that I don't have it all figured out. Um, I can't necessarily see the end, um, but I need to be faithful with what's in front of me. And so, you know, as a woman of faith, I, I pray for wisdom more than anything. And I pray for, um, to be able to wisely tackle the right opportunities without putting my family at risk. Because one thing I learned 
from 2007 was I took on way too much debt to start a business. And, and when I really didn't understand economics at all and what was happening in the greater economy and how that could impact my choices. So I realized through that, that I really have to understand what risk looks like. And I have to learn how to mitigate that risk and determine any deal that I do is the reward at the other side of this deal worth the risks that I have to take in order to, to see that reward. And so I'm very, very careful with debt, for example. So for example, in this economy with rising interest rates for the last two years, I've said no bridge debt. That's a risk I'm not willing to take because I've lived through the pain of a decade of having to come out from under $700,000 of debt. And I don't plan to ever have to do that again, right? And so I've learned to really evaluate risk and mitigate risk. And when I can say that I can confidently mitigate 70 to 80% of the things that could go wrong with a backup plan B and plan C, then I'm gonna pray for wisdom and I'm gonna do everything I can to kick down, burn down, jump over the door and, and get it open so that I can walk down that opportunity. And then I pray for wisdom that if it's not in our best and something bigger is coming in the economy that's going to cause us harm, I pray that God slam that door and don't let me knock it down. And he's been pretty faithful to do that. So that's pretty much how I make decisions at a high level. Obviously, I'm underwriting deals. I'm looking yeah, at the yeah. numbers um, and I'm looking at what my investors need. Um, and and asking myself if if the risk on a deal is worth a reward. But ultimately, one of the blessings of, of having created financial freedom is I no longer have the stress and the pressure that I have to do a deal just to get a deal done, just to keep people paid, just to keep food on the table. So I really am very blessed that I can say, you know, I'm not going to say yes to every opportunity. I'm only going to say those that really are aligned with my financial goals, the risk that I'm willing to take and with the lifestyle that I want to live. Because one of the risks that we take in doing, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger deals is that it takes a lot more of our time. And so you have to ask how much money, how much more money is really worth the sacrifice of my time and the financial freedom that I've already built. Yes. So many of our peers, um, I find are doing deals because they need the acquisition fees or they need to, um, keep the property management company, their internal property management company paid. And it's like, oh, yeah, you don't, you don't do a deal out of desperation. Absolutely. What would change if you could go back and you can't say the $700,000 business loan because that's too easy, but what would you change or what would you teach yourself to be a, a, a better investor earlier? Sure. Um, one truly, and I just did a Facebook post about this today, is I would become a student of the economy, not just a student of real estate, because we can be really good at what we do, our particular niche, large multifamily, for example, yeah. self-storage, for example, whatever you do, and you can do fundamentally the right things to the property and still make a mistake that absolutely derails the investment, such as taking on bridge debt in an environment where potentially rates could go up, you know, another point and a half, and then you're stuck not being able to refi the deal. If you don't understand how interest rates work and how interest rates can impact your, not only your um, debt costs, but your cap rates and how that could impact your, your debt, sub, debt service coverage ratios, your loan to value over time while rates are going up, your exit cap. If you don't understand what's happening in the economy and how that impacts your investment, you can, you can be wiped out. And unfortunately, a lot of people are. So what I took away from 09, because looking back, I think I kind of had this level of pride that, hey, I, you know, I figured out finances. Like I got out of poverty. I've climbed the corporate ladder. I understand, you know, wealth and banking and retail investments. And then boom, I was completely blindsided by the financial system collapse. I didn't understand how all of the financial companies in the, in the United States and the world are intertwined, how they bet, make bets against each other and have insurance on each other and, and you know, hedge each other, you know, failing. So all of those kind of things took down the financial system. A lot of the real estate investors did things that were fine, but they had no idea what was happening in the economy. So now, because I see similar things happening today where 
many factors outside of real estate specifically are going to impact a real estate investor's success. I say to everyone, become a student of the economy. Understand the microeconomics of your market. So for example, you're in Houston. How many Houston employers are at risk of having to lay off employees? How many of them have too much debt on the books? Um, how many you know, jobs are there in the immediate 15-minute radius of where your property are? And what would happen if we go into a recession? Could rents come down? Those kind of things. You want to understand the microeconomics, but also the macroeconomics of if the Fed does this, how might it impact my rents and my my exit strategy. So become a student of the economy. It's one of the best things you can do, not just a student of, of real estate itself. How long did it take you to become, because you are clearly a master at understanding the um, micro and macroeconomics. Um, I know all these big words because my wife has like eight degrees. <laughs> How long did it take you to understand that and, and what vehicles that you use to um, retrieve and, and learn and get that knowledge? Sure. You know, when I realized that I needed to do it was in 09 when everything collapsed. I worked in AIG in the division that actually did credit default swaps. So it's one of the, the financial products and derivatives that took down the bank, the financial system. And I knew nothing about it. So I realized I got to start learning first what caused the 2008 Great Recession? What caused the financial system collapse? What caused real estate to collapse? What were the warning signs that were in the economy the three to four years before it actually happened? And so I started reading while I was just starting to really invest in real estate. I'm going, okay, financial system collapsed, but so did real estate, right? And now I want to go after real estate because at least I can see people need a place to live and they're going to keep paying rent. I realized that when economies are struggling, people quit spending money on discretionary stuff. They quit saving, they quit investing, but they're going to prioritize food, shelter, and energy, which is what I had to prioritize when I was wiped out in 09. So I just started studying what led up to what happened in the financial system. And I learned a lot about real estate from that, about speculation, about real estate cycles. If there's one thing you want to study, is study real estate cycles, you know, from the time that you're at the top to the time that you have oversupply to the time that you are in undersupplied and you're in recession and recovery. Um, and then, it, you know, you start all over again. So I started studying real estate cycles. And what I realized is because we were at the bottom, even though I was scared, Presley, because we lost everything, I was kind of like, what do we have to lose? Right. But I realized studying those economic cycles very quickly that from the bottom, you usually have about a decade where you're gonna start having the economy recover and real estate values are gonna go up and rents are gonna go up and jobs are gonna get better. And then you're gonna to get to a point where you're at the top of the economy, you're teetering on a recession, things are too hyped up, oversupplied. And at that time, you've gotta sell. That's the time you start going, this is the top. And if I don't get out now, I could lose a lot of money and it could happen again. So that's really what I studied at first was just the real estate cycles. And I realized that Warren Buffett said, when other people are fearful, that's the time to get greedy. And when other people are greedy, that's the time to be fearful. So mm -hmm. I, I realized I have a golden opportunity that if I can figure out at the bottom how to make money and hold on to these things for a decade, I can create wealth in a decade that most otherwise, if I went the retail world would have taken me, you know, till I was 65. And so right. I was able to retire at 44 with very limited economic knowledge, but enough to learn what crashed the real estate before and how long of a cycle do I have to write up before I have to start worrying that we're at the top. Um, so that's where I would start. Wow, that's powerful. Um, I, had a, I had a really important question, but I was so in, in intertwined in your answer because um, for those who are watching or listening, um, I follow your, your post pretty uh, closely and the level of detail and knowledge that you put on your, the Facebook posts is the ones that I follow. Thank are you. so detailed. And I'm like, does she have a degree in economics? Like, I know you work for, uh, for AIG. <laughs> so I just figured you did something around that at AIG, but 
it's truly just being a, a student and understanding the, the craft and mastering the craft that you're in. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I learned about retail investments, stocks, bond, mutual funds, hedge funds offshore that you can put in an insurance product, right? So I learned what do wealthy people do with their money and what are they worried about? And three key things that I learned from that that I'll just you know share with your audience is at every point in your life, at some point, you're going to have one of three financial goals. And it's your job to figure out what's your financial goal in your time horizon. And then what kind of opportunities in the marketplace, and in our instance, real estate, are going to really be the best vehicle for us to get that next financial goal accomplished. And so at different phases of your life, you're either looking to, to replace your income and grow income. You're looking to create big upside or growth for the future in your retirement funds that don't pay income, or you're looking to preserve your capital. And so I knew, where am I, Anna, in 2009? I was poor. I didn't care about retirement money. I had nothing to preserve. I needed to focus on deals that were going to bring me cash flow and income. And that's all I needed to do. And I put blinders onto everything else. Once I had my income, you talk about the transition from 70 units of my own to building and scaling the larger ones. I realized that multifamily deals, and this is really important for people getting started, they are really a vehicle to upfront acquisition fees. And, and hopefully most of it's on the back end when you do really well, but you're not gonna make a whole lot of income during the life of those deals. So if you're going into big multifamily, that's filling the bucket of the growth and the appreciation and the big checks, not your income. So you've got to think about, is that the right vehicle for me if I'm still looking for income, right? Now I'm going, I want to preserve everything I've worked so hard for. I can hold off on deals that don't give me a ton of income. I can work for some growth, but for less risk because I need preservation. So that's what I learned really from my career in the financial sector was just how to think about investment goals and what kind of vehicles we're going to get those for you. But real estate, it's really a, um, it's a lesson in self-education. I didn't know anybody that had real estate. I didn't know anyone that had apartments. I did not attend local meetup groups. That was a mistake because I had four babies, worked, was running my husband's chiropractic business, doing the billing and the medical and the marketing and all that. I had no free time. So, but when I was, you know, driving and sit, sitting at games, you know, sitting at sports, waiting for my kid, I was listening to podcasts. I'm listening to, you know, the Federal Reserve and how interest rates impact our investments, you know. So I started to just listen about the economy, what's happening, um, you know, how is the Fed propping up our, our assets and our companies and fueling us with debt and how does debt work? What kind of debt is safe? What kind of debt is, is, is not safe? And so um, I really did it gradually and slowly as I had time. I made sure that any book I read on real estate, I was reading a book or finding an article or finding a podcast on the, the economy and how economy and economic conditions can impact me as a real estate investor. How much time now do you spend on your education and do you have it I know the answer to this, but do you have it blocked out or is it when you get to it? Um, I time block pretty religiously from the moment I wake up to the moment I, I go to bed. If you look at my calendar, I have appointments with myself all day to do something. I probably have um, until three o'clock. And when my kids come in the house, I have appointments for Snack time, devotion time, making a meal, having a meal, pick up the kids from school, homework. Then they go to bed and I get in the hot tub or I sit in my massage chair. And when I'm in my massage chair or when I'm on my bike in the morning, I listen to podcasts or I read on my phone. So I kind of have to multitask to get everything done that I want to. But you shouldn't be in the car or on your bike or on your treadmill or in a massage chair without filling your head with knowledge about something that you need to grow. Because if I don't do it at that time, it's going to happen once, you know, once every two months when I'm on an airplane. <laughs> I, I wish I would have, I actually did think about this, but I wish I could put your schedule on a, on a screen. Because if you, you've shared your, your schedule multiple times, actually. Yes. And what you fit in a day. It, does your superwoman cape ever get caught in the car door? I mean, it's like crazy. <laughs> 
I say I, I, some people say I'm a superhero. I say I have a very tattered and worn cape for sure, you know, <laughs> but I, I learned something when I was very young, Presley. And again, that was if I wanted a different life than what I had, I had to be all in. I couldn't be interested in changing my life. And the same thing when I'm, when I was working with inner city kids, right? Same thing when I work with my coaching students now. You can say, I'm interested in creating financial freedom. I'm interested in creating wealth. I'm interested in replacing my job. If I'm interested in working out and getting in shape. Anything that we're interested in doing, if we don't put more action than we have interest, it just becomes something that we keep pushing off and pushing off one day when I'm ready, one day when I have time. If you're fully committed to doing something and changing your life, there is no mediocrity. There is no... Um, you know, when I get time, you have to make time and prioritize what's most important to you. And when you don't, it will fall by the wayside. And so I have to live my life because part of me, I'm just going to be, you know, completely transparent. There's days that I say, Anna, you're financially free. Why are you still working 25 hours a week? Why are you time blocked every minute of every day? Um, are you enjoying freedom? And I, I can say, I really am, you know, three o'clock when my kids walk in the door, like I'm wife and mama, and I'm not stressed out. So I just, I don't do things that make me have to fill my time beyond that. But the moment that they're out of the house, I work hard and every moment is filled with work. And then my evenings and my weekends are really free and with family. And it allows me to travel all summer. You know, I time block nine months a year. And then during the summer, I do what's absolutely necessary. Everything else I have systematized, automated, hired out so that I can travel and enjoy the life that I want but I can only do that because I'm extremely rigid and disciplined with my time the rest of the time. Delayed, uh, delayed gratification. Yes. How is your, or what is your thoughts about um, the economy now as far as um, multifamily goes and interest rates? I guess the, the, the whole mess that we're in now, what is, what is your current day-to-day -day thoughts? Like Presley, I think we could honestly do a whole nother hour show on this topic. So I'm going to try to just hit a couple of highlights. Okay. Um, as a whole, I'm worried about where our economy is. And I think that we're in for some pain in the next couple of years. I would be pleasantly surprised if it didn't turn out that way. Um, but I have been preparing myself really since early 2019, when we first hit a blip of a manufacturing recession um, for a potential recession. And then we had the pandemic and then we've you know, made our way out of that, but now we're dealing with mass inflation. And on the other side of mass inflation is the Fed significantly raising interest rates, which we're only about halfway through. They have said, and I think they are showing that, that killing inflation is their number one priority. And that's gonna mean that rates continue to go up this year. And I think that they're gonna hold them there for a year. I think they have warned us that we are going to create pain AKA the economy is going to have a hard landing, maybe a plane crash, right? Depending on who you listen to. So in order to kill inflation, they have to kill demand. In order to kill demand, they have to kill our wages. In order to kill our wages, they have to kill jobs. And so unfortunately, rates will make it so expensive that many corporations can't service their debt. Many people quit spending money because they can't borrow to spend. And most of us have no savings. You know, 70% of the population has less than $4,000 saved. Um, they will quit spending anything that's discretionary. So any company um, that you might work for or that you might be invested in that provides discretionary products are those that are going to be most at risk during a recession. And so I believe that, that fundamentally, whether we're in a inflation for another year and a half, or we're in recession for a year and a half, or we're in stagflation, kind of a middle ground between rising costs in some areas of the economy and slowing growth in others, there's going to be economic pain for the American people, I think, for the next couple of years. And so people are going to prioritize three things, four things, really, food, energy, shelter and transportation for those that can't work from home. So I am very bullish, meaning positive, about those who provide food, energy, housing, and transportation. Those are the companies that are going to struggle less, right? So as a multifamily operator, 
I'm more excited now than ever to provide multifamily housing. I know that it's something that people need. And now as housing is more unaffordable and will continue to be unaffordable as interest rates rise and credit uh, criteria uh, tightens, more people need to live in apartments. And so I do, I believe fundamentally, and I've seen it historically as I've studied history, that multifamily housing fares well in both inflationary times and recessionary times in general. If values dip a little bit, if cap rates go up because interest rates go up, they will bounce back because people always need a place to live. And housing, multifamily investments are always an amazing hedge against a stock market falling and an economy falling. So pain ahead, happy to be a multifamily investor and operator, but we do have to pivot and hedge some of the ways that we provide those investments because there are more risks to operating and owning multifamily in the next couple of years than what we've had in the last few. So with, with that thought and those comments, have you changed um, your class that you're that you would typically buy? Are you going from where well, I normally buy class C plus B minus, and now I'm really kind of headed towards class B plus A minus, or and or are you buying different sizes of units? So now you're in uh, uh, larger units. Are you looking for smaller units, or how how has all of that? started molding your current um sure that's a great question really great question so one thing that i learned and again this is partly being a student of the economy and also trial and error in my own uh, progression as an investor is that i do not buy class c apartment buildings in class c to c minus areas um, because they're really difficult to make the returns in reality that you show on paper um, the, the property values don't tend to go up as much as class A and B. Um, the tenants struggle more financially, right? So they're gonna they're gonna have a hard time paying rent. They've already been through a pandemic. So they're already, you know, living check to check, accumulating a lot of debt. Um, and and they're struggling right now as as the cost of everything, food, energy, and housing are all up. And they're gonna continue to struggle. So I made the shift um, where before I started wanting to invest in Class C because I could see myself there, right? These are the people I want to help. I realized that my returns and my ability to provide for my family were much harder investing in Class C properties. So I shifted several years ago to only buying older buildings in nice Class A to B plus areas and then using my investment dollars to allow me to give and be a blessing outside of my investments, right? Instead of trying to do both through the same vehicle. So I've been pretty much just a class A to class B market investor, but doing value add deals that were older buildings and bringing them up to standard. I'm still doing that. So I wanna be in areas that have great schools, Presley. They have low crime and they're really close to a lot of jobs because when the economy hits pain, again, whether it's inflation, whether it's recession and layoffs, people are going to prioritize staying in safe areas with good schools where they can keep their kids in a nice area. They're not going to move to pay a little less rent and go in an area that's really rough. So that's important to me. The other thing, this is just a personal preference, but one of the things I struggled with a little bit when I did class C is in order to make them worth more, I had to kick out all the tenants. I had to renovate all the units, kick out all the tenants, make them way more expensive. And yeah. I felt morally that I was becoming more of a part of the problem that I had to escape as a child. And I didn't want to put other people out on the street. When I'm buying in class A to class B areas, if, if I raise rent on a tenant, they can go to you know 10 other apartment complexes and choose to pay a little more, a little less based on their amenities. But I'm not really contributing to a major problem of affordability for people that are already struggling. So that was just kind of a personal thing for me. Um, the only thing I'm doing differently now is I'm also focusing on multifamily development. And so I'm working on you know, two small multifamily development projects in Pennsylvania, one large multifamily development project that's coming up in Dallas, Texas. And so we're looking to kind of get ahead of the recession by starting ground up development now that historically, by the time we're you know up in vertical and we're filling those apartments, we're past the recession. Hopefully, we're past recovery, and we can still exit those buildings at a really uh, good cap rate, 
a strong value and sell them to institutional investors on the back end. So that kind of hedges um, you know, the fact that we may be in a recession for a year, year and a half or longer. Our thoughts as well. Um, we, we expect to be stabilized in about 36 months. So eh, same. Right. Um, um, what is next? What is the, what do you look upon the horizon? I don't know what's wrong with my words today. I have juice with a little bit of caffeine, but it's not working. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's, what is the, what is the goal without saying what is the goal? What, what are you working towards? Is it 10,000 units? Is it a, a cash flow number per month? What is the, um, the thing that you have on your vision board? Great. So this is a really good question too. And I'm, I'm, every time I, I say this, somebody is shocked, right? And thinks I should think bigger, right? But here's the thing. I worked really hard for financial freedom. And the reason we want financial freedom probably is because we want time freedom. It's not about the money. You get a certain amount of net worth and a certain amount of income coming in. You really don't need more, right? If you create more, it's a wonderful way to leave a legacy. It's a wonderful way to be philanthropic, to be able to give more. Um, but I no longer look at units and go, you know, I've done 2000 units as a general partner, ballpark, and I'm still buying more and vacation rentals. And I love vacation rentals as well. I've got several around the country where we want to travel. For me at this point, it's about lifestyle because I've created that financial freedom. So it's about, for me, doing really great deals, finding great opportunities, bringing those to my investors and helping bring everybody up by finding really great opportunities that I that I feel really good about um, and where we can make an impact, not just a great return, but really make an impact on the community. And sometimes that doesn't mean I need 5,000 units or 10,000 units because the trade-off to go from 2,000 to 5,000 is I've got to work 60 hours a week again. I've right. lived that life. I've created the financial freedom and I don't want to sacrifice my time just to build something for the sake of saying, I'm the next billion dollars assets under management or I've got this many thousands of units. Um, apartment syndications are a churning thing. Every two to three years we're selling them, right? So we're starting over again. So for me, I do not have a goal that I want so many units under management or I want to do so many more units. My goal is really to continue to do really great deals with really great people. Um, say yes only to phenomenal opportunities that have really great risk-adjusted returns um, and, and to create a legacy in my kids to teach them how to steward money. Um, and I coach and I mentor young people. So being able to give back and use the money that I do make to pour into financial literacy um, and to pour into communities is really my goal. My goal is more impact. I want to impact a thousand more people in the next couple of years, more than it is wow. I want a thousand more units. And wow. I'm just very blessed to be able to be in a position where that is the kind of thing that excites me. That's amazing. Um, I expected no less of an answer, but nevertheless, I still wanted to ask it for the audience. Um, the great thing, I'll just add this, Presley. The great thing is when I when I retired from AIG, yes, I wanted to do like five syndications. I thought, man, if I could do like 500 units, that'd be amazing. And then I hit 1,000 and then I hit 2,000. And, you know, as you, when you're doing really great deals with great people and they're really great opportunities, the next, you're, you're bombarded with opportunities, right? And so what I have found is even though I just told you I'm very disciplined, I'm very driven, I have time set aside to look at deals every single day. I have time to talk to investors every day. I have time to do all the right things. When you're doing all the right things, your goals will far surpass what you thought you would do. And that's the reality. So I just don't set arbitrary goals anymore. I, I set goals to continue to improve my craft and do better and better and, and be really disciplined with my time doing all the right habits. And I just trust that the results are going to come as they're meant to. Look at your cup all overflowing and stuff. Every day. <laughs> I pinch myself daily and thank God daily. <laughs> what have you learned as a now experienced investor and syndicator that five years ago, 10 years ago, you would have not thought that would have been the case or just something that you just totally didn't think about? Hmm. I thought that the more units you did, the more cash flow you would have for a really long time and the easier it would get. 
um, the more units you do, the more opportunity for growth that you have on the back end, but the more work it is, and it's not a whole lot of cash flow. It really is a you know upfront and and back end kind of deal. Um, and I wasn't prepared for that, Presley. And it's why I talk about it because if you go to a lot of real estate seminars, they'll tell you if you jump into multifamily, you're going to replace your income immediately. Now you may with an acquisition fee, right? You may do a deal or two and get an acquisition fee, and that could replace your income depending on what your income is. But it's not this steady, you know, cash flow every month you're going to make the same amount because you're constantly churning deals, you're emptying units, you're, you know, driving down your cash flow as you're doing your reposition. Um, and I didn't know that. And a lot of people get in it with the wrong expectation of what that income is going to look like. They find that it's really hard and then they give up. They quit going to seminars. They quit trying to do deals. And so I, I like to tell people it's a long game. You know, it's a business just like anything else. Um, it's not passive until you've earned it, right? It's active. My wealth today was built on the blood, sweat, and tears of active income. Today, it's extremely passive for the things that are buy and hold. But for my, you know, my, my active multifamily syndication, it's still work, right? But it's work I love doing. So um, don't give up too soon because it's hard. It, it is hard in the beginning. Anything that, that's worth doing, anything that's worth making money is going to be hard. Um, just play the long game. That That's really the lesson that I've learned is, is play the long game because so many people give up just before it gets really good. That very it, that shocked me so so much because I'm the numbers guy for our team. Um, but when I started underwriting and I was looking at the the distributions and the cash flow, when I my first couple of deals that I looked at, I was like, this is not a lot of money. <laughs> and you don't <laughs> expect that you're like, this is a, a $10 million deal or a $20 million deal. And this is what the distributions are, especially within the first year, the first couple quarters when you're, right. you know changing units over. I was like, wow, this is not what I expected at all. Right. Um, I want to talk about your coaching as a second question. Um, well, let's talk about that now. So tell us about, because I want, I want the audience to know that um, they might potentially have an opportunity if for the next session that's open. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. So I have a mastermind and I have a coaching program. My coaching program is currently full. Um, but you can check it out on my website, reimom.com. I do have openings from time to time. Um, and then I have a mastermind. My coaching program really helps to, it, it's kind of a combination of, of financial planning. I'm not a registered financial advisor, but just taking my 20 years of, you know, working in the financial world and my 20 years plus of real estate and saying, where are you today in your finances? Where are you today in your real estate journey? And where would you like to be in the next five or 10 years? And I really coach you to help you figure out a, a plan of how do you marry the right opportunities with your financial goals, with your skills and your passions, your experience, your team, uh, your resources, and really create a plan to scale up and to do what it is you're looking to do. So that's the one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, and I coach on multifamily and um, small multi-units, vacation rentals, anything that I've done. And then my mastermind really is, um, I created it to be a mastermind different from what else is out there, Presley. And what I mean by that, it's not, it's not niche specific. So it's not just multifamily. We talk about multifamily. We talk about vacation rentals. We talk about banking and financing. And we've been talking the last year about preparing um, my mastermind students and clients to what's coming when the Fed starts raising rates, get prepared that lenders are going to cut your LTV to 65%. They're going to raise their rates. They're going to make you have more reserves. So we talk about the economy, preparing for you know what's coming, um, different types of risks and how you mitigate those risks. Um, and, and really, I'm trying to teach people to become a well-rounded investor, marrying learning about real estate, learning about the economy, um, learning about syndicating deals and working with investors, et cetera. So both of those, you can check out my website, reimom.com slash shop and you'll be able to find more details there books i've been in four books that i've co-authored and i've been featured in two or three uh, you can also find those on my website reimom.com backslash shop and what am i missing anything 
books, coaching. I'll say if you're a if you're an accredited investor, because I do only work with accredited investors at this point, and you're interested in our future opportunities, you could check out my website at greaterpurposecapital.com, where we really focus on going after large multifamily deals where we're not just kicking out all the tenants, but we're really making an impact on our residents and doing some neat things to make that happen. Wow, what an elevator pitch. Man, take my money now. That is beautiful. <laughs> I've heard many, many pitches. I've heard many explanations, but that was a very beautifully crafted. You thought about that. You thought about that um, and, and, and had to use that previously because though I can tell you have a very beautiful mind, you polish before you disseminate. And that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Again, for me, it's all about impact. And I've learned that you really don't have to do one or the other, focus on money or focus on people. You really, if you focus on people and you do good by people, you can create really good returns and, and, and do well for yourself while, while making an impact. So that is the thing that's the most dear to my heart. That's why I glow and am polished when I talk about it, because I've been there. I've come out of poverty and I just want to help other people, you know, to take that next step. And if you're an investor, maybe you don't have the time to do the mission work and go out and make an impact, but you, you can choose where you invest your money and you can choose to invest in people who are making an impact with your funds.